A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Oh, I'm Murphy Ken on here with Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. And I'd like to start things off with an apology, Ken. A yeah. joint apology on behalf of myself and Murph. Uh, we made he some, speaks for me in indeed. this time. Yeah. We made some comments on last week's I'd podcast. like to hear you say it as well, though, if, if that's possible. Listen, Owen is d- taking care of this, all right? We made It'll a few comments early. last week that might have made our listeners feel that you were being sent to the least attractive of the Ruby World Cup fixtures over the weekend. When, in fact, as we all suspected all along, uh, you were going to Brighton to witness the greatest shock in the history of the tournament. So if we offended any listeners, if we offended any Ken Earlies in the midst of making our comments, we do apologise. But what about Japan turning over to Springboks, huh? Unbelievable. Well, I wasn't. Was it that big a surprise, Owen? Oh, oh yes, it was. <laughs> uh, I was quite surprised. <laughs> you, yeah. I didn't think that. It, it Did you actually think? Way. Oh my god! I haven't done my homework here. Japan are actually really good. Maybe everyone else in the press box knows. Uh, Should I have been writing this? Oh, no. no, I, I, I mean, I was watching the whole thing from. The, it's weird because I know Japan were. They led a few times in the game. I think it's four times altogether, but. You never actually really thought that they were seriously going to win until they already had. And it was like, <laughs> I can't believe that just happened. I re- honestly can't believe this. Because the whole game you're kind of watching with this, um, mm, yeah, you know, when is when are they going to get their heads broken apart here? You know, when, is, when are the Springboks going to trample them into the dust? Because, I mean, even just watching them beforehand, like, those guys are terrifying. They really are. Yeah, I mean, African players. Absolutely terrifying. Size-wise. Oh, ridiculous. And I mean, you're, you're looking at this thinking, this is a kind of a different feeling. I mean, you, you know, the, you get all kinds of uh, mismatches in sport. You get like, um, you know, a football team that you know, knows it's going to lose before it takes the field. I mean, that's quite common, but you don't... You know, yeah, you don't get flyweight boxers up against heavyweights. No, you don't. There isn't like this sense of, 
my God, what are they going to do to me? You had that, a line in your piece, sorry to cut across here, with, with your own quote, but you said uh, when the Springboks are standing around at ease, they all instinctively put their hands on their hips so their arms can buttress the hulking superstructure on their shoulders. Yeah, well, the, the arms are just way out of proportion. <laughs> you know, you've got these guys who are all pumped up, you know, huge, huge guys, massive sort of torsos, but their arms are just... They're, they're hanging down. They're like transformer arms. You know, they're like, it's, they look like they were in pads, you know, under the, and the arms are just kind of hanging down. And it literally looks like when, when they're hanging there, it's like, oh, it's putting a lot of strain on my, my shoulders and back. I need to get these things kind of harnessed up, hitch them up, and they can kind of support themselves. Someone, uh, when I was over in Las Vegas, I was talking to one of the guys who makes the um, notorious documentary, you know, the Conor yeah. McGregor thing. So he had been hanging out in the house where... McGregor was training, and obviously one of the days Arnold Schwarzenegger came over. Oh yeah, Conor McGregor's good friend. I think their agents maybe know each other or something along these lines. You know, once you're that rich, you get to you Be know friends with rich, Arnold rich people kind of hang out with each other. So uh, he he was there for a while, and the guy said that the thing that he remembers about Schwarzenegger being there was how uh, the the governor was never once, <laughs> never once seen not to be leaning on something. It was like he literally cannot stand unaided anymore. His, he's got these gigantic <laughs> arms and shoulders, which are literally too heavy for his spine and his lower back. So everywhere he is, he's, he's like, oh, you know, he's got these cracking sounds coming from his vertebrae and he's just oh, resting his arms and shoulders <laughs> on stuff to take the weight off. And I'm afraid that maybe lies in store for one or two of these Springboks because they have the kind of upper body, shoulders, and arms that make it look ve- as though they could very easily tear my head off. They might have to twist it around a couple of times, but they could pull it off. They could pull it off the shoulder. One individual Springbok could pull your head off uh, the shoulder. Definitely, some of them could. The Jaeger guy. I'm looking at a lot of Vic Jaeger, and I'm thinking, he wouldn't even need to twist it. He could yeah. just pull it right <laughs> off. He'd it'd put come one hand. A, it'd put, come off with a pop. He'd put one hand on your shoulder to make sure that he didn't lift your entire body up. And yeah. then with the other hand, he, his entire hand would be across the top of your head and, and yeah. just pull it out like just a p- carrot. Pluck it off. <laughs> pluck, pluck the head off very easily and then look wonderingly at both sides of it. <laughs> what have I got here? What, are you, what is it? Then oh. just sort of discard the two halves of my, of my Bismarck, body. Bismarck, I'm sorry. I've broken this one. I'm sorry. Could you get a new one? I've broken <laughs> this one. What's wrong with this one? But, you know, the, the, I, I talk about Ludovic Jaeger there. So, so he's some kind of a monster, you know? <laughs> and he and he's not at all. He's a he's a nice young man who, with the face of a much younger man, and he who just happens to have the body of a of a of an enormous you know ogre. Uh, <laughs> and he he got through for a try. I mean, it was such a weird thing to see. So like, why is this guy running through? This is this is stupid, Japan. You're stupid. And then there's Adrian Strauss as well. I mean, Adrian Strauss, very baby faced. Uh, I think sport. he looks like a depraved priest. Uh, in a, imagine Friar Tuck had an evil cousin, you know, <laughs> he and you know living in like he could play the Archbishop of Canterbury in one of these fourteen, you know, he'd be he'd be yeah. horrible, you know, just bags of gold and like poison and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Adrian Strauss. He he shouldn't be getting through either. He should not be be tricking his way past tackles and shimmying shimmying through and getting to score. So if if guys like that are running through the middle, something's gone badly wrong. And you're thinking, well, there's no, I mean, there's no way that you can get away with letting in a try that, that bad against a team this much better than you and still win. Yeah, the rest of the tackling had been so heroic and so amazing. And then they would suddenly concede a try like that. And you think, oh, well, it's got to end now. But they kept going, kept going. 
is, made that decision a couple of times made decisions to go for to tap penalties or to go for lineouts and scrums rather than take a draw or at least take a shot at a draw there uh, which seemed I know I mean, everyone's cheering them on that's what you're certainly watching on TV that's what you want them to do in the stadium did you get the sense that I know they were saying afterwards well I mean our coaches didn't want us to do that yeah. but we just felt the physios were running down the line <laughs> take the three points <laughs> take the three and they were just ah uh, you know Mm, screw that guy. Sorry, what's yeah. that? What's that? What's that? And the balls in there. It was, you know, they, they, that's what they wanted in them the to scrum. do. But you know, it was like, well, look, you know, we, we they, you got the, they, it didn't even seem to occur to them. And, and to be fair, the few of the Springboks were there afterwards talking, and they also weren't surprised by it. At least, um, by Lam- being beaten Lambie by wasn't surprised. I think I called him Roger. By the way, you, we called Lambie Roger. Uh, Lambie, yeah. Why did you call him Roger? Because I, I'm he, pretty. Did he look sh- like a Roger? I'm pretty sure he had it on his accreditation. Roger Lambie. Yeah, maybe he's maybe Roger's his middle name, or maybe Pat's his middle name, or or maybe he just took the wrong accreditation. Yeah, or maybe Roger. He outfoxed you there. There's no doubt about that. No, I'm looking at. Maybe Roger was the name Patrick the manufacturer of the accreditation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't think he heard they won, me say Roger it. won the official accreditation. Yeah. But like, I mean, he he said I didn't. I wasn't surprised by it. You know, they we they'd had a man. Sinbind, uh, they and you know they were they were kind of their blood was up and they were really close to the line. So yeah, I didn't I wasn't surprised they went for it. But I mean, it was just I was surprised they went for it because mm-hmm. you know, because you've got a chance for a draw. A draw is a huge result. You know what I mean? It's a huge result. You pro- you're probably not going to get through for the try. You're probably going to lose. This call means you're probably going to lose. You know this is crazy. And they but you may just win. Well, they, you know, it was the, it was obviously the right thing to do. Did you I mean, see the Japanese amazing. players afterwards at all? Uh, yeah, yeah. And oh, the they... Japanese players hung around there. They they would stay there all night talking about it. Literally, like they were like, uh, I mean, they stayed on the field for like twenty five minutes. You know, the stadium was pretty empty. The Japanese guys are all still there in the field, you know, with their kids, looking around, like grinning and sort of going, "This is amazing." And then they they come through the mix zone. And first, this, the South Africans stopped mostly talked in the mix zone. I went first of all to the press conference. And the, I felt sorry for the coach, like the, you know the Springbok coach. He's like this big guy. You know those Heineken stupid Meyer. blazers they have. Oh, the blazers! Yeah. I mean, it's just so you can see the full pomposity of the institution that he represents. You yeah. know, and he's like the king of this unbelievably pompous old school institution, <laughs> and he's just been shamed as no one has ever been shamed in the history of of South African rugby. Right? He will always be the man who lost to Japan, even if he wins the World Cup. It will always still be kind of mm. the players took over. That's what you're going to hear if yeah. that happens. The players took yeah. over, and they. Hanukkah Mar is not going to. Do you want to hear the reaction from uh, New Zealand to this extraordinary win? Yeah. yeah. Gregor Paul writing in the New Zealand Herald: Japan's ball retention in that period was world class. Only the All Blacks have shown that same ability to play with such belief and skill in the closing stages to win from behind. <laughs> so uh, fair play to New Zealand for somehow. You know, incl- uh, infiltrating the this story with uh, they've managed to uh, infiltrate into this story some uh, good old fashioned New Zealand arrogance. So well, the, well this, done to them. I think this this you know not not a lot of teams could have pulled that out. Like there was Eddie Jones, I was quite impressed by. This is the Japan coach, and yeah. you know um, he was pretty fun. I mean, okay, he's it's a nice moment for him. He's good. It's kind of a positive situation. It's different from your man Meyer. He was there literally, like face down. Staring there, like a total kind of, um, oh my god, I've I've totally got to reflect the gravity of the moment of this of this shame. You know, I better make sure that everybody knows how sh- how ashamed I am. You know, uh, 
how can I display that really openly? We've let our country down. It's not good enough. I took full responsibility, all this kind of stuff. Whereas A. Jones come in and he's all kind of laughs and gags. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I just thought like seven points up, you know, it's like that moment in the horror movie, you know, the woman goes to take a shower at midnight, you know, we all know what's going to happen. And like, that's when they're going to run away with the game and score three or four tries and, you know, but it didn't happen that way. And the reason it didn't is because Japan scored an unbelievable try. Mm. I mean, the best moment of the match in, in terms of skill was what they came up with when they needed to stop the game running away from them. I mean, it was... The penultimate try or the, the final try? The yeah, the penultimate try was incredible. I mean, yeah. the final try was great as well, but the penultimate try was just like... I mean, that was over the other side of the field for me, so it was kind of like, <laughs> what happened there? Like, how did this happen? You know, how did, they, how did they get away there? So you have to watch it again. You know, you can't really see what's happening over the other side of the field. I didn't even have one of those earpiece things. So I have to say, I watched a lot of it going, yeah, it's... <laughs> at least the old scoreboard kept ticking over you, well, you, you can get busy you know to, okay so 63rd minute penalty huh? there's, I'm, a lot I'm of a stuff, there's a lot of stuff on the scoreboard they give you they, they say things like you know penalty and try <laughs> you, know, they, you know they can keep you up to date with what's Little going cliff on notes, yeah. Yeah. that's it from Ken and, uh, that, well, a very enjoyable letter from Brighton thanks Ken for penning that first. I never even told you what Brighton was like huh? you can tell us at the end Okay. So that's the end of this podcast. There'll be a certain symmetry to the whole thing. Sure. Because right? uh, we do have to talk about the All-Iron Final, the dream final talk got on people's nerves in the build-up. Mm. Um, but there was, you know, there were, whatever about it being billed as a dream final between the two, two most successful counties in GA in Gaelic football history, when it turns out to be a terrible game in terrible conditions, you can see why that talk does get on people's mm. nerves. Well, it's good. Do you know what I mean? There's something, it's fine. If it ends up being an absolute shootout and it's 3 10 to you know, 2-11 or something like that, that, that that's all great, but uh, a 12-9 scoreline doesn't really do it for anyone. Yeah, basically the the dream final talk is all, is annoying, uh, but then you think, right, well, I suppose they're the two best teams, so I suppose they'll go and, you know, give us a good game of football or whatever. Uh, and then when the game is really bad, uh, like it's, there's been one final, there were 60-minute finals until 1970. Yep. Then it went to 80-minute finals for five years. And then they trimmed that back down to 70 minutes. So since 1975, the finals have been uh, 70 minutes. Only one final since 1975 to today uh, has been lower scoring than yesterday's. Which was? 1990. Cork, 11 points. Mead, 9 points. Uh, So we're talking about a very, very poor All-Ireland final, I'm afraid. Uh, Although, funnily, uh, not... If you heard in advance that, that was going to be the score, you might have thought the analysis then would all be about blanket defence and negative football, which wasn't really the case. No. The analysis was largely on how Kerry so badly underperformed in the conditions and how they fa- how their skill set let them down, bizarrely, which wasn't expected to happen. Yeah. As opposed to there being... So it wasn't really a philosophical debate after the game. It was more just uh, head just really, Yeah, exactly. And I, I suppose we've sat through enough of the football is dying chat for one summer, for many summers, actually, over the course of the last uh, four months. And you do try and be positive. But yesterday, the, sk- the individual skill level of so many of the players let them down. Individual errors... Uh, rather than a collective team failure, meant that the game just never took off. And if if you're looking back through your through your mind's eye, like what was the, key, the what were the key moments of the game? I suppose Alan Brogan's point for Dublin and coming coming on, he was there's a story there. There is it, that that's a kind of a memorable moment. 
Other than that, the rest of the game was, I'm afraid, just one big meh. We're going to get Mike Quirk on in a couple of minutes. Oshin's here. Oshin, how are things? How are things? Ah, not too bad. No, not too bad. I think we both predicted a carry victory. (laughs) Me by just a a single score. You by, was it four or five? Five or six? Yeah, and I went and screwed it up on us. I know, yeah. I'm devastated personally that uh, Kerry didn't seal the deal. But no, um, what 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 changed? What happened uh, that uh, rendered your prediction so wide of the mark? Kerry people and Mike Quirk's not going to like this, but uh, I'm going to compare them to Armagh today because when I turned up to watch Armagh Donegal in the championship this year, I felt as if Armagh would have tactically would have Donegal figured out, and I still don't know. If they if they did or not, but they just forgot to play, and I think that was the thing with with Kerry yesterday. Even Fitzmaurice's assessment of it was quite frank and ver- fairly honest. And yeah, he says he, outworked us, outthought us, out, like, as in they out, Dublin outworked us, outthought us, outfought us, and the better team won. Yeah, absolutely. You can sum it up much better <laughs> than that. It can't be any more honest than that. You can't accuse him of of hiding behind anything. Uh, but Kerry were absolutely awful. From the, it was an awful game. On. And I know people say the conditions, but it wasn't the conditions couldn't have made it that bad. All I mean, the, this is the two best teams in the country. All of the players were born in Ireland, I feel, and nearly all of them. They've all lived for a, lot, a large part of their lives in Ireland. So rain it shouldn't <laughs> be that alien a concept. Now I think it was it, it, it was heavy, constant, and started before you know, not long before yeah. the game, which doesn't all of which. They're certainly mitigating the, circumstances. The, the one thing about the surface in Crow Park, I've yeah, said this to you yeah. before, that it is so hard. There's no given. You boys have played. You boys have played there. Badly, of course. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for taking us on your <laughs> level there. <Oshina>. Extremely <laughs> yeah. high profile occasions, yes. Um, but it's so the surface is really hard, okay? Yeah. And then it rains on top of that, but there's no actual give in it, okay? But I still think, like, what, what, what cross. Boys, at the minute we played, uh, we've played a couple of challenger games, and it has been in the rain. And our boys have been slipping and sliding. And after the game, myself and John Mack have went round the dressing room, every single one of them, to make sure that the blades that they had went in the bin, or at least went away for the year. Because mm. you can't wear them if it's slippy in Crow Park. You can't wear those blades because you're just all over the place. And I'd say a couple of players yesterday were wearing blades. It's it's the old fashioned cogs. Get them in. And you get a you get a bit of portrait. And the strange thing yesterday is that it probably uh, should have benefited the likes of Gooch and, and O'Donoghue. O'Donoghue was they slip sliding all, basically all day. But that's the sort of thing that puts uh, defenses under pressure. But it seemed to me only the uh, the Kerry defenses under pressure. Kerry failed to any of the delivery into the full forward line was was pretty poor. They failed to get ahead of the ball, and they just failed to. Inverness Morrissey they failed to turn up. They failed to turn up and play and express themselves. And for me, I think that's probably the only time I can remember. I can remember Kerry being beat before, but I think that's the first time that I remember them turning up and not actually playing. And too seemingly too locked into the amount of things they had to get right in order to beat Dublin, and they seemed to get very much locked into the tactical battle and, and just forgot to express themselves. Mike Quirk, would you go with that? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth in that stuff. I mean, you know, if you told me before again that we would have won, that we would have won maybe about 45% of Dublin's kickouts uh, and that we would have denied Dublin scoring any goals I would and, and that they would only have scored 12 points, you know, I, I would have... 
I would have bet my house that we would have won the All Ireland final. You know, those three things from Kerry's point of view were were crucial, like to to keeping keeping the game close and giving ourselves a real real good chance. And you know, we accomplished all three of those things. I mean, forty five percent of Dublin kickouts. I mean, he, he, they haven't given up that much ball from their own kickout in in about three years, and, and we were able to do it in one game. But we got no value out of it. We got no scores. We got no return out of it. And um, it was just, I, I don't know. It was a really hard game to to, to explain. I mean, the surface, as O'Shane was in, it's like an ice rink, you know. And and with with the new ball and with that that slippery, greasy surface. Now, obviously, it's the same surface for both teams. But but Dublin just seemed to be able to manage it, you know, better than better than Kerry did. And I, I just, it was a complete. System. Failed. They weren't. They didn't do anything. Everything seemed to be focused on stopping Dublin, stopping how they played. But you know, didn't seem to concentrate on on, on playing. A, you know, a game plan that that we had worked on for four weeks. And um, I was very disappointing because you don't mind losing any game. You know, we've carried last plenty of big games and and games to Dublin even in the recent past. But it, I, th- I think the most disappointing was just the complete lack of performance. You know, there was there was only about really four or five guys that wake up this morning and kind of say. You know that they did themselves justice in a carry jersey, and that—that's the most disappointing thing, I suppose. Yeah, the, w- it's interesting what you say there about the, that, that idea that they were kind of you felt kind of that they were locked into a plan that there was, as Lushin says, no expression in their game. What I thought after about twenty minutes of just seeing non-stop errors from both teams, and obviously the conditions were absolutely horrendous, and you know there was no point in ignoring the conditions. I I thought that if if this was a rugby game, you would say. Put the ball into an area where if uh, if the opposition make a mistake, it can be mm. fatal to them. That if if you're play, if you land enough balls, say Rory O'Carroll had an excellent game yesterday. He still just left balls behind him. Like uh, I'm just picking him because he was one of the best. Yeah. But he came out for a number of balls and just left them behind him yeah. because the conditions were so were so treacherous. In that situation, would you have not? And it was a day for Donny as it turned out, but. Would you not, uh, if you were Kerry, have gotten men and possession or men and players into that kind of Dublin full backline, kick the ball in there, and let the mistakes be fatal if they happen for 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 a, a Dublin cornerback, Mike? See, yeah, like you know, I I just think that like we, we played Danny in a, in a month's final replay in Killarney in in horrendous conditions, and and there was very little. Little came off it. We did the same against Tyrone in the semi-final. He played the first 35 minutes in, in similar wet, slippery, treacherous conditions, and very, very little came off it. You know, Fitzmaurice obviously went with a with a change with with Ganey after him doing so well. And I I know now it's very it's very easy on Monday morning to say, look, that that was a day for Daddy. He, you know, we, we he he set up a goal chance for Killian Young that he that he mishandled. He had a you know there was talk of a penalty. There was there was no penalty, and he looked he looked like you know he was causing a little bit of bother. But I I, I just think. You know, even with Ganey inside there and with, and with James O'Donoghue and Gooch, like I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that 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 basically he was following that Philly McMahon, like like Tyrone did in in the noughties with, with Ryan McMenamin or or one of the McMahons, that they just go and and say, okay, if I'm marking Gooch, I'm going running as far away from my own goals as I can possibly run when we have the ball and see if he follow me. And all day Gooch was playing like a like a half back as opposed to a corner forward. And I couldn't, I, I just couldn't fathom how. You know, maybe stick him inside in the edge of the small square and leave Paul Ganey go and chase Philly McMahon back to field or something. Like we, we just kind of we allowed Dublin, similar to what Mayo did, we allowed Dublin to dictate the way the game was played. And like from Philly McMahon's point of view, Philly McMahon was 
was jinking at Gooch, kicking the ball over the bar from 30 yards out from our goal. Philip McMahon was in, in, in dream world, you know, having to mark the Gooch on those terms with Gooch playing as cornerback. And I just thought we allowed Dublin to dictate the way the game was played, the pace that it was played again. And, and, and it was just, I, I, I just wonder, you know, I, I was just disappointed a little bit in, you know, on what exactly we've been working on for the last four weeks because it seemed to be all about, you know, what Dublin are doing and, and really didn't allow Kerry to, to maximise the guys they had in the pitch. Although it's funny because last year, uh, Fitzmaurice Oshin was being praised for for doing just that, for focusing on what Donegal do and for coming up with a plan to counteract that. Now, I mean, it, wasn't, it didn't exactly have to be a tactical master plan. It largely uh, just involved not getting sucked, particularly their half-backs, not getting sucked too far forward and uh, leaving too no. much space at the back. You know, yeah. But they, this is what you have to do now. You do have to focus on the opposition. And, of course, Fitzmaurice is getting criticised for that today. But is that not part of it for both managers, that you have to look at what the other team is doing and nullify it? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I thought a lot of what Fitzmaurice had put in place was fine, but really and truly, like, I know Kerry won 45% of Dublin's kickouts, but they probably should have won more. Uh, you know, like, uh, Moran and Maher, I didn't think were particularly good. It's the worst game of football I've ever seen Moran play. He was very ponderous on the ball. He didn't look comfortable on the hay ball. He, you know, he, he sort of, he encapsulates, encapsulated what was bad about Kerry yesterday in that Every time he got the ball, he wanted to go laterally or he wanted to go back, and there was no runners off the shoulder. So, a lot of what Eamon Fitzmaurice put in place yesterday probably was okay to begin with, but uh, when players don't carry it out, and I'm I'm quite sure, and I stand to be corrected, but I'm quite sure that he didn't want them going laterally across the field. I expect that he wanted runners coming off the shoulder. <clears throat> and more says a day for Donaghy. Yeah, it was was a day for Donaghy maybe when, when the thing opened up a little bit, but early on, like Kerry had umpteen opportunities to slip the ball in, slip it through the hands and, and kick kick scores. You know, the Gooch probably should have been called ashore certainly at half time. You know, the the the, the substitution of James O'Donoghue I thought was very, very strange. Given because that he'd scored three points back point. Yeah, well, he just looked as if he something could happen through him, you know. And he was playing, I suppose, he was playing a little bit closer to goal, certainly, than he did in last year's final. And he probably looked as if, if he had to get one break, that he could have done damage. Gooch got a ball at one stage and kicked it back out to the 45-yard line, whereas... Normally, you know, Donoghue would at least, well, he would go direct. He would he would take his man on and try and kick a score. I couldn't believe that Gooch was one on one with Philly McMahon at that stage, and he turned and he kicked the ball with the right with his right foot back out, and then the ball went lateral. I think eventually they did get a score off it, but it was just indicative of what was happening from a Kerry point of view. And Ian Fitzmaurice had a lot of things in place that certainly, to me, looked as if they probably would have worked out all right. But you still need the players to carry these things out. The Kerry defence was under a huge amount of pressure. Dublin should have finished yesterday with probably at least another 3-5, three, 3-6. Three, I mean, they should have absolutely destroyed Kerry. The shoe was on the other foot in that situation and give Kerry those opportunities. I mean, they just they'd ravage you completely. And Dublin just didn't do that. Uh, Dean Rocks was, was a, obviously a brilliant chance. Fenton's was a brilliant chance, but he could have slipped Paddy Andrews in. Uh, did a couple of other half opportunities that they could end Paul, up in the back. Paul Flynn's points could certainly have gone under the bar rather than over, yeah. 
And the, even the the chance of Paul Flynn had from fourteen yards, he turned around and kicked it on a one wide, yeah, yeah one wide. Like so, they had they had a huge amount of opportunities. I mean, Kerry absolutely beat out the gate with three points yesterday. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, how many questions did Dublin answer uh, based on, uh, particularly given how much stick they got last year? I mean, James McCarthy, Mike, was saying a lot of slurry was thrown out us, I thought, after the Donegal game last year. says people were calling us cowards and chokers and bottlers. It annoyed me, it annoyed the rest of the lads. Now, this is the standard stuff we hear after every big Gaelic football uh, All-Ireland final, be it camogie, hurling, football these days. Is that the, the, There is always that. But they were obviously getting hammered a little bit for their lack of adaptability. Did they show a lot more uh, in this final? Listen, I, I thought Dublin were a ten fight the better team yesterday. You know, no question they you know, they deserve their win. Like next year when Kerry win the All Ireland you'll probably hear people saying that they were <laughs> yeah. second captains this year, you know. <laughs> like it's just standard. People use that kind of stuff as fuel or motivation as much as they can. But like like I wouldn't like to try and take anything away from Dublin yesterday. I mean, in, in those conditions their wet weather skills were so much, you know, far superior to what Kerry's obviously the weather down here must have been better in the last month or so because we didn't get a chance to practice in the rain because you know our handling was was you know far poorer than than theirs was and they the they were just so so much better. But if 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 you're going to take you know you know any top level athlete is going to take motivation from anywhere they get it. If they're going to get lambasted for rolling over to Donegal last year. You know they're, they're going to use that as a bit of fuel in those long nights training and those hard sessions, and that's that's you know you take it from anywhere you can get it. And don't worry, the, the Kerry boys now will be will be licking their wounds, and they'll um, you know they'll be taking the same thing from any angles they can find it. They've now won as many All Ireland titles as their seventies, the you know the gilded uh, team of the nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oshin, is this the best Dublin team of all time? Um, it's it's close. I think it will prove to be in the next number of years. I think they still need to keep winning all Ireland in order to prove that. Uh, but they have they have so much potential. Um, I think it's it's strange, but it's probably the way that, that Gaelic football has gone. That towards the end of the game yesterday, we've seen more like what is our best fifteen on the field. I don't think they started with the best fifteen. Um, I think the likes of Obviously, you know Fenton. I, I know I wanted to drop him on Friday, but <laughs> he did. He did. He had, he had another super game. He's grown all the time. McCaffrey's grown. Uh, hard to believe he's only twenty-one. Um, you know James McCarthy. All those guys, and you know we haven't even mentioned like Cormac Costello, who's, who's who you know who didn't see much game time mm. at all this year um, through injury or whatever, but. Uh, you know they've, they've got a conveyor belt and and it's one to envy. But this time next year, more we're going to be talking with the same teams all over again. It'll be Mayo, Kerry, Dublin. You know and and you know if if Mayo can can improve and tweak a few things, uh, you know I've seen enough from them this year to suggest that. It might even get my vote of confidence. Well, we'll leave that. We'll, we'll leave the predictions for the time. But, uh, yeah, but just you know that's the way it is. I mean. Kerry will be back next year. They'll be there or thereabouts. But this Dublin team does have an opportunity now to, to kick on. Bernard Brogan made the point afterwards that after their, he was asked what they learned from the games against Mayo. And he said, well, what they learned was that in the first match, they were a bit too hyped up about things. They were jumping around the place, going, you know, essentially getting overexcited. Yeah. And they worked on that in the second game. And they said that they remained a lot cooler in the second game. Uh, which they probably did. Did they carry that through? Did they look like a team that were a bit more composed under yeah. the pressure of an All Ireland final? Yeah, they weren't as hyped up. Uh, I always look at uh, Johnny Cooper. I always look at him because he sort of 
he's he sets the tone for how hype, hyped up the dubs are and it depends on when he jumps to his knees to the chest he does <laughs> dur- during the walk around the uh, the parade and he he was he was quite calm yesterday he wasn't as fidgety as he normally is um and had a good game as a result and i think when they are measured uh as they were yesterday and and cold and ruthless um they're a really really difficult team to stop is that what they were they were cold and ruthless yesterday i think so yeah and i think the other thing was that you know they weren't afraid to express themselves I can't believe I'm sitting here and saying that about Kerry because it's, uh, it's not like them to come to a final and not perform. So, yeah, Dublin, uh, you know, were cool, coolness personified yesterday. Uh, maybe the one moment they might have lost a bit of coolness was the Philly McMahon incident with uh, the alleged eye gouge, I suppose, of Kieran Donaghy. Mike, what did you make of that? Alleged? Was it alleged? Um, uh, it was outrageous. It was outrageous. See, I... I, I want to be careful now and I don't want to be, come across as, as, as you know some guy who's nursing some sour grapes like I, I would love to be very clear and say that Dublin were were by a country mile the best team on the, on the pitch yesterday but you know I, I thought it was I thought it was the most outrageous thing I've ever seen on a football pitch when I, when I saw it back on TV and um, you know like I, I couldn't I couldn't be you know, any more disgusted by by when I watched it on TV last night? It was it was it was it was awful. It was just awful. I mean, Paul, Paul Galvin, you know, back whenever he slapped a notebook out of referee's hand, got got suspended for the bones of pretty much a year. You know, and to send out a message that you're you're never to hit a notebook out of referee's hand. Like if 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 there is a, an incident whereby some guy is allegedly put his finger in another guy's eye. You know, he's not there checking his contact lens, and, and and that kind that kind of a thing needs to be a strong message sent out that this is not something that is ever acceptable by any player in the GEA ever again. And and I would expect, you know, that there would be action taken because this kind of attitude by the Sunday game last night that it's oh, it's an All Ireland final, and you know we don't want to we don't want to upset the boys in the team hotel who are watching the game live and uh, watching the Sunday game live and having a bit of crack, and we're just kind of gloss over. That was that was the worst thing I've ever in my life seen in a football pitch, and and I hope that that somebody takes action to make sure that we don't ever see anybody do that again. Well, yeah, people, who, yeah, people on Twitter certainly were getting a, a fairly head up over the fact that the Sunday game didn't, uh, you know, well as you, you as you say, glossed over it maybe to, to an extent. Although Murphy, you we've been talking about this off air that really it shouldn't matter. It's not that the Sunday game shouldn't so be a final average. Yeah, your the, outrage yeah. is completely misguided. Everyone giving out about the, the Sunday game's reaction to this. Like, if if there is an eye gouge, if that's happened on a football field, it doesn't matter. God, it cannot matter less what Kieran Wheeland and Kevin McStay and Tomas O'Shea make of it. If, if something that serious has happened, then we need to make sure that if a suspension is put in place, that it holds. That's the I important thing. I don't think we need to you. say that it's alleged. I think it was pretty obvious what happened. Uh, funny, I'd, ne- I'd never seen that. I've never seen that on a Gaelic football pitch before. I don't think. You know, I've never seen it as bad as that. I don't think we need we we need to say or qualify it by the fact that Philly had a great year and all those things. Right. Well, uh, yeah. Go on. Sorry, Mike. Sorry. Just like I, I thought, I thought Philly McMahon would be in my top three player of the year candidates. I, I thought he's after an unbelievable year. What he did. You know, with Aidan O'Shea in the semi-final, his performance on on, on Gooch yesterday, I thought he was pr- close to man of the match, and I thought he, he he was definitely in the top three players of the year. 
and, but I, I, it's just completely irrelevant to, you know, it's a completely separate thing. And like Alan Quinlan, I remember in rugby, got, you know, missed out on a Lions tour after after he did something far less to Leo Cullen. And, and you know, like there's, there should be like a severe, severe penalty for, for, for a kind of an act that can cause a serious implication of somebody's health and, and, and long-term outside of football. These guys aren't getting paid. This is an amateur game. And whether it's a moment, moment of madness or not, like somebody somewhere in the GAA, you know, needs to make a statement that that this kind of thing is never acceptable. Like Tina McCann, we gave Tina McCann a desperate going over because he threw himself down and acted like a genet after getting his hair rubbed. This this is a far more heinous crime, and regardless of Dublin and Kerry and and finally it should be stamped out in the strongest way possible by somebody in the headquarters. No, but just to, I just want to move on, and I think you know you know it was a horrendous thing. It's hard to believe though, just just thinking that. For all the planning that would have went into Ian Fitzmaurice's preparation, I might be able to tell you better. Like you know, and it's obvious from afar that you know he, he plans for a lot of things. But it's hard to believe that you'd have to go around and plan and look at everybody's footwear and making sure they weren't wearing blades going into a game like that, or 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 moldies or different things like that. But th- honestly, I've had to do that with a senior team. You know, we've done that with a senior team in the last number of weeks. That you know, we got to you got to completely stamp that out because. We, Literally, there was we had six or seven or eight fellas who couldn't keep their feet. Yeah, you know. All right, just last word, Mike, on the I guess the future of this rival because for better or worse, it does look like these are two of the the three or four teams who are going to be dominating for the foreseeable future. Is there a chance that this is going to start getting into Kerry's heads now that the rivalry has switched so far towards Dublin over the last three games that now Dublin could be the bogey team for Kerry? Yeah, they're 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 turning into Tyrone, aren't they? Um, it, it's like I mean, we we the last time we played against was two thousand and nine, and we we put a serious licking on them, and um, it seems that they're 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 using that and they're they're beating us with that stick now over the last couple of games, and you know they're going to be there again. They're going to be there for the next couple of years. Their their age, age profile is such that they're only going to be coming into their prime the next few years. Like I, I, when I saw after the, that that Jack McCaffrey was only twenty one, I got an awful fright. I, I, I thought the guy was about 26 years of age, but he's been around the place. Right, he's been on a drip during the week. He, he could hardly, you know, he could hardly stand. As far as I didn't reckon he's playing, he comes out and he plays like that. And uh, it's, it's, it's. I, I think you know, Kerry Miners won yesterday. We're after back-to-back minor All Irelands. I think there's going to be Jack O'Connor is going to take you on the 21s next year. <clears throat> I think there's going to be a steady stream of really good Kerry footballers with a with a good age profile coming up to to supplant the, the guys that are going to be missing from next year. Maybe you know Donahue's and, and these guys if they do decide to pack it in. So I think for your next 10 years, you're going to have a really really competitive, healthy rivalry between between Kerry and Dublin and and. Uh, and long, lay, long may it last but hopefully we'll, we'll turn the tide again alright listen great stuff Mike Gushing thanks a million for everything through the year as well thanks a lot Thank no bother and he is my second captain second captain that's uh-huh. the humorous competition I saw that important man for my selection If I keep asking people this, maybe... Uh, Three wins in five years would 100% put you into bogey team character, uh, into territory, I would think. Like, Tyrone, it took Tyrone 
Well, that was five years as well, wasn't it? 2003 to 2008. So by the time 2008 came around, we weren't even asking the question of Kerry and Throne. They, would, they were they, they at full-blown bogey team status. The thing with Throne was it was a, largely because it was a very specific type of football that Kerry were struggling with. Mm. I don't know if that's the case with Dublin. I don't, I don't know if Kerry struggled with the type of game Dublin play necessarily. Well, no, I mean, the 2013 semi-final was, you know, the freewheeling carnival of football that convinced Kerry that they had to go ultra defensive yeah so they've come out uh, the wrong side no matter which way yeah, I would say yeah, it's okay. probably worse this way in that uh, whichever way Kerry want to play Dublin can beat them alright uh, the Irish Times second happens football podcast is out now that's yeah they have asked for that really well, you can laugh I'm to walk up I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me what are you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive. I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. I will down to one field and we'll see them. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? So we talked about Diego Costa, Owen. Should he be uh, packed into a crate and shipped out of English football? Or is he a soul in pain who needs understanding rather than condemnation? What are you rebelling against, Diego Costa? Yeah. Is there is there something that you want to talk about? Let's talk. Let's be open with each other. You know, because there isn't any judgment here. Well, there actually is judgment. We <laughs> There's did, a lot we, of judgment. We judge, we judge him harshly. But, you know, that's one of the things we talked about, among other things. All right, let's talk. We'll be World Cup now after a fairly incredible opening weekend. Jerry Thornley is with the team, uh, who are now based in St. George's Park in Burton-upon-Trent. And Shane Horgan is with us too. Lads, I'll start with you, Jerry. I mean, oftentimes these tournaments take a while to get going and I think I was saying last week that nothing much happens in the Rugby World Cup early on uh, oftentimes anyway but that was a hell of an opening weekend Jerry a hell of an opening weekend it's got to be the best opening weekend ever I mean Argentina topping France in the opener on the Friday night in Paris uh, eight years ago was pretty cool but uh, this was a sensational opening weekend England Fiji very good but obviously Japan made it I'd say tournament organisers could not believe their luck all this stuff about the two, two nations uh, always being dangerous has been underlined with the biggest shock in history, I believe. They could have been backed it up to 100 to 1. And it was the way they did it. Um, they did it by playing rugby. A lot of Tier 1 teams against South Africa in the exact same position. Japan were in, near the, in the end game. Probably would have settled for the draw when twice offered the chance to, to take it. And even then, had they gone for the try line, probably would have just battered away close in. But Japan trusted their skill sets to go wide right, wide left, and scored a fabulous try to deservedly win it because it should have been a penalty try when South Africa um, pulled down the mall that was going over their line. Um, Willie Neely, I think, had it been the other way around, they would have got the penalty try. So it was great to see, and it's been a boost for the tournament. It's absolutely woken up everybody to it. It's generated world, even more interest than it already had worldwide. And, of course, it's a boost for the tournament in four years' time, given Japan are hosting it. So the World Cup organisers just couldn't have dream, dreamt a better first opening weekend. Shane, what do you think? I mean, there was the ballsy decision-making, uh, some would say slightly insane decision-making, that worked out in the end to, to go for a line-out, to go for a scrum with those late penalties. But the quality that uh, Jerry talks about there was in evidence th- through the entire match. They backed themselves to execute the, the try at the end because they, they made so few mistakes with ball in hand through the entire game. It was incredible. Yeah, it was very impressive, but I disagree with you. I think that, I know it was a ballsy uh, call, but I think it was 100% the right call. Japan aren't going to win this World Cup, but they were, had an opportunity to beat South Africa in a World Cup, and that might never happen again for them. They might never be the team of their stature again, but they had them by the throat, and they were right not to take their foot off. They were right to keep on going and pressing for it, because 
in, although a um, a um, draw would have been a fantastic result, it wouldn't have had the legend that they have now. So I was so happy as well it worked out for them. Um, whether they'll make it through now to the second round or not, we don't know. I think we, what we did see was, as, as you said, some very low-risk um, um, rugby where they, they retained a lot of the ball. There not many errors, not many mistakes. As you said, Owen, oh, they uh, kept the ball for long periods. But also, um, they um, perfected a couple of moves from the training park. And we saw Eddie Jones's uh, fingerprints all over that as well. I think uh, the deconstructing of the uh, South African defensive line for the the, the, the try that um, the the second last try that really got them back into the game, um, that was uh, a try that any tier one nation would be happy. It was very obvious. We've always said that South Africa, if they don't overpower you and you stay in the game and they don't um, get away, they can be deconstructed uh, technically. And Ireland have done it on many occasions. I didn't think uh, uh, Japan had either the wherewithal or the skill level to deconstruct them. And I didn't think, even if they did on occasion, they wouldn't have the uh, size to be able to stop the South African power. But South Africa didn't bring their big uh, collision game. And uh, they, there was certainly a bit of hubris out there with turning down some kicks to goal, uh, which would have ultimately led them to, to win the game. And, and uh, Japan exploited it. When you mentioned the size, Shane, um, that was certainly one of the things that really impressed me about South Africans. I mean, these guys are just ridiculously big. But are they getting to the point at which they're they're getting into almost diminishing returns? I mean, is there a limit on the size um, that rugby players can get, a limit that South Africa are are dangerously close to crossing? Because maybe, um, you know, maybe it's also important to be able to move around the field a bit as well. It is. And in fairness, South Africa, they're generally fairly um, athletic as well. I mean, they, they're probably of the Southern Hemisphere teams are probably the least athletic, but they're, uh, they are probably the biggest as well. They are huge, huge men, a lot of bulk, and they're all about collisions. Um, but I think there's something else in the South African psyche that for a country where uh, rugby is, uh, you know, not just, I know football is the main sport there, but rugby is probably the second sport there, um, and has a huge long tradition um, in the co- in the country that they're not huge innovators in the game. Um, South Africa don't innovate, innovate. They do rely on and have historically relied on huge players, just monsters who will who will grind down the opposition and pummel you into in submission. Yes, they've had pacey players, but I never thought they've been that sort of innovators like uh, like uh, Australia or even New Zealand, and certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, like Ireland are. And um, if they not, if they can't, if they don't dominate you, if they don't do that, and they should have done this against South Africa, against Japan, I don't know how it didn't occur. Um, they they can be exposed. Jerry, are there so- uh, the Japan game and a couple of the other matches. Are there signs now that footwork and pace might have their day again? That, that uh, just to follow on from what we're talking about there with regards to the size, that actually this could be the theme of this World Cup. We're always looking to see what innovations will be brought to the game, that a team like Japan can actually cause a shock like this, uh, allied to some of the other, you know, even Argentina's performance. I know things will tighten up maybe later in the tournament, but are these positive signs? Yeah, very. I mean, I do agree with you. I think things will tighten up at the business end of the tournament and decisive pool games towards the end of the pool stages. um, And certainly in the knockout matches, historically that's the case. There's huge pressure in those games. Uh, Mistakes can be... See a team knocked out of the World Cup, that's huge pressure to bring to bear. So players are going to be less likely to make mistakes or try things, and coaches are going to be less inclined to um, give them that license. But I do think in the pool stages early on, 
uh, with bonus point system and so forth, uh, and Japan now showing the way to a degree that we are going to see hopefully more of this entertaining brand of rugby. The weather was also very good, not least down in Brighton for um, Ken and everybody else who was there for both matches over the weekend. It was glorious weather in the sun-kissed south coast of England. And it won't always be like that throughout this. Um, I mean, this, is gonna, this, this tournament is basically going to go through four seasons, in effect, and the, the conditions will vary enor- enormously. But that was, the one, that was the beauty of Japan's win. They didn't fluke it. Um, they deserved it, and they did it by playing rugby. And a brand of rugby, like I said earlier, that I'm not too sure an awful lot of even Northern Hemisphere Tier 1 teams would have dared try in the end game against South Africa. And they did it with that fabulous strike move that Shane referred to off a line-out. We don't normally see Tier 2 teams do that to Tier 1 nations. We don't even see it generally sometimes during the Six Nations when the weather can be worse. So it was great to see, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think there was even some encouragement in the way Ireland went about the business of playing against Canada and the way that they used so many decoy runners so well and many strike moves, uh, you know, windscreen wipers coming around the back, players holding their depth, going wide a lot, and it was good to see Keith Earls, Dave Carney, both in plenty of ball and brought into the game, and that seems to have been a trend. There was a very good rugby play. It was a nice variety of rugby. There was a wonderful defence from the Pumas against the All Blacks rattling their cage. So I think it's, it's a really encouraging opening weekend in terms of the brand of rugby we watched. Obviously, Fiji are always going to produce a great brand of rugby, and they did against England. And I think that uh, it's, it was a nice sustained level of entertainment all through Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And it's made everybody quite excited about the next weekend and the midweek matches to keep us ticking over. And if you look at the scheduling, there are lovely matchups every weekend, big, big key games this coming weekend, mostly England v. Wales at Twickenham on Saturday night, which should be a cracker. So I think it's, it's a very encouraging sign in terms of the brand of rugby that we're seeing, and particularly when you see that Japan win, it shows that you can beat a physically bigger side playing a high brand of high-quality, high-tempo, skillful rugby and scoring tries. Shane, where does the Ireland performance fit into the opening, the, uh, that entire narrative of the opening weekend? How encouraged are you by it? Uh, you'd be reasonably encouraged. I think there's a few areas to polish up. I think it's interesting what Jerry said that, uh, there that the the lower ranked teams can beat can beat them if they attempt to play in the way that you know we've seen Japan play actually Argentina as well but I think it's not they can beat them I think it's the only way they can beat them and I think it's the only way Ireland are going to win the world, this World Cup as well is by really pushing their skill set and going after um, every team and I think it started. Um, at the weekend, I think it, they moved the ball much wider than they had done in the warmer games, as we assumed they would. Uh, we also saw their transition from defence into attack um, much more fluid and uh, much more decisive. There wasn't hanging around, and that great try that was scored uh, by uh, Rob Carney after a phenomenal uh, left-right pass, full tilt on the run by Earls. Uh, was off the back of uh, transition play that we hadn't seen from Ireland in quite a while. So from that perspective, I think we're seeing a couple of things that are positive. We saw Johnny Sexton as well have a kick. There was a tap and go. So they're looking at different angles, not just playing the the, the, the sort of basic way and the grind down, because that has elements that have been successful for us in the Six Nations, but it won't win us this World Cup. There's no doubt about it. So I think they are thinking uh, at about a little bit more expansive game. They're thinking about uh, that little bit more width. Uh, there was great success for every team who put width on um, their offense over the weekend. And I think uh, what we need to do now is have a look about when we do hold the inside. I thought we were holding the inside quite well with our wraparound and a couple of various moves. But we need to think about our strike runner, where he's standing 
how uh, flat he needs to be, how much pressure he can put himself under, and also the skill of distributing um, from um, through the tackle on the run. I think that we're just a little bit deficient at that at the moment, and, when, and as a result, uh, when we are getting out to a couple of the wire channels, we're, we, we have a defensive um, line pushing us towards the touch, where when we move it out that wide, if we do our job on the inside and our strike runner who's taking the ball either in front or behind is getting it, there should be an overlap. Did the players, uh, Jerry, and the management sound encouraged though overall that they that they produced that performance, albeit with the couple of caveats that, that Shane has there, I'm sure Joe Schmidt will probably have a couple more in his head, just that they actually were able to play like that, uh, given that uh, you know, the, the warm and essentially immediately consigned the warm-up games to history. Yeah, I think that's, that was the big bonus from that win. That's why it was an important match. Um, if I don't go far in this tournament, my, the, the highlights reel from ca- the Canadian game might be for, relatively short, but there were, it, it put to bed those warm-up games. And it kind of, it kind of almost underlined the theory that Ireland didn't quite so much throw those warm-up games, but they certainly were keeping their powder dry. And it wasn't, the results were not of paramount importance, as Joe Schmidt had said all along. Um, and they did unveil brand almost a different way of playing from the warm-up games that brought all the players involved into it, and they did seem very encouraged themselves by what they did. By but but the same tone, relatively low key, because they know that what they faced, they will face much Turner tests to get down the line. I mean, we've got to remember Canada did not push up much, so it gave Ireland plenty of space to orchestrate those moves. And they also defended quite narrowly, which left space in the outside. And they were also quite naive. I mean, for defensive scrums, they put a centre in midfield. Um, there was no real need for them to do that. And it gave Ireland a, a, a location, a soft under midfield to attack. And I don't think other teams would be that naive. Um, and, of course, the, the 19, first 19 points in effect that broke, broke Canadian's resistance were while Jamie Cudmore had incurred a rather needless yellow card. You factor in all those comments, and it was interesting to hear Joe Schmidt talk afterwards about tailoring the tactics for each game. And that was the ta- these were the tactics for the Can- Canadian game. There might be something similar against Romania, but he did make the point that the Italians push up with much better line speed. They were very obdurate against the French. I think they only conceded one try to a little bit of Freddie Michelac brilliance. There might have been another, of course, but for a fumble over the line. And, and France are not the most creative side in the world. It's true, but. Um, he did suggest that that might not necessarily be the way they'll play when it comes to the Italian and French games, just simply because they have far better line speed and defence than Canada showed. They're in the uh, it's the FA's base there, Jerry, isn't it? The, at St George's Park, Dunning base. Yeah, they all sound Dunning. pretty impressed by what, what's so great about it. Well, we've just done a tour of it actually. Um, right. Forty-five minutes. Um, the girls from the FA showed us around all the place. I mean. It's the medical facilities, I think, that are really... I mean, there's full-time medical staff, more or less, or strength and conditioning staff of about 13 people, including a full-time doctor for six to eight players to use every week that are on the way back to full fitness from an injury and getting rehab. They've, um, they've 13 pitches. They've a stunning all-weather indoor pitch, but it's in um, outdoor conditions because there's so many... Um, gaps in it and there's a lot of glass in it so that there's always a team to come train there all the time um they've got a a wembley only pitch which is exclusively for the english team that is just the exact replica of the conditions down to the size of the grass everything about the wembley pitch that the english team train on nobody else can turn go on to that but there's a rugby pitch there for ireland to use england have been here four times ireland are only the second team rugby team ever to come here um, and they're going to have a rugby pitch, which is, again, the exact same dimensions and grass length and so forth as Wembley. It's been lashing rain all morning here, so they're not going to use that until this afternoon, so we won't get a feedback from them. The gym is incredible. They've had to put in 
bigger weights because generally they would have football teams here and obviously rugby players lift bigger weights than footballers do. Um, while we were doing our tour, Sean Dyke, the Burnley manager, walked through. Burnley are here for the day getting ready for a match against Derby this evening. A lot of football teams use it. Barcelona were here last season for pre-season for a week and of course, as Holly from the FA pointed out, they did go on to win everything. Uh, Shane, just in terms of team selection for next week, what would you like to see happen? Is this the time to bring in the entire second team? The, um, I, I'd like to, I think he'll have to make changes. I think he should make changes um, just for, um, not just for momentum, but also um, because uh, it's a squad environment. And if players don't play this weekend, they'll quickly dawn on them that they're unlikely to be involved uh, for the rest of the tournament. Um, and that can really affect the mindset of players. And even if they're doing their best not to let that filter into their body language and uh, their performance or, or you know, even a sort of loose talk, um, I think it tends to do that. So um, much like the Ryder Cup uh, scenario, it's important for everyone to get a game before um, they get through to the real business end. And I think there's still a couple of areas that... Uh, Joe Smith will uh, have under examination. Um, I think Luke Fitzgerald was really impressive the weekend at 12. Mm. Henshaw is likely to come back, and if he's fit, he will be back, and rightly so. I don't think Joe will mix with the pairing. I think he'll continue on with, uh, with uh, Payne. Uh, he's done well, but um, I, again, I think maybe if we're going to go all the way, maybe it's important to get Luke Fitzgerald in there. I, otherwise, I think Luke might play in the wing, um, the other big area for me is uh, Henshaw. Uh, no, sorry, uh, Henderson in the in the second row, and Devin Toner, who's been a stalwart and someone who Joe really likes because he does his basic jobs really well, um, will be really in a dogfight for his position. And um, if he doesn't perform, or if he doesn't perform, you know, really close to his best, it looks like Henderson may get that slot. So. You know, there may not be a huge amount of uh, positions that could change, but I do think it's it, it's vital that everybody gets a uh, gets a run out or as many people uh, get a run out as possible. Also, there's a, if Ireland are to succeed in the tournament, it's game after game after game um, that are going to it's going to be very tough and physical, and um, it's going to be back to back. And that's not every team has a, has that um, issue. You know, New Zealand got their big game out of the way this weekend. Uh, they can balance their squad, rotate it a little bit more. Uh, Ireland aren't going to have the um, aren't going to have the joy of being able to do that against well, less so against Italy, but certainly not against France. Yeah, we'll leave it there. Listen, Shane, brilliant, Jerry. Thanks a million. Cheers, thank you. One of the things I liked about the Japanese players afterwards was how they were talking about qualifying now for the second for the quarterfinals, uh, which is obviously the right way to think after you've just beaten the biggest team in the group. The problem, Simon, is that they're now back out on Wednesday against Scotland. Yeah. This is the issue every Rugby World Cup people complain about it. Nothing ever gets done about it. But in the one on the one hand, the, uh, the World Rugby do seem to help out a lot of developing nations to get to a certain tier two nations to get to a certain point. But then when they arrive at a Rugby World Cup, it's like, okay, well, screw you guys. You're playing Saturday, Wednesday when the bigger teams will get a week in between each game. Yeah, it's bizarre because, I mean, what we should be looking for is shocks and helping the weaker nations. I mean, half the reason most people have looked at this World Cup this weekend was, you know, the Japan game. Say somebody who didn't care about rugby, I think that's the one thing that would stand out, obviously. Um, and then it's the teams with the thinnest squads, with the least resources, with the least history, who get punished the most. And, uh, you know, for Japan, like, we know modern rugby games, particularly we all saw what Japan went through. 
for a modern rugby game to play three or four days later, it's 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 way bigger than it would happen in say in soccer or even Gaelic football. It's a huge punishment. It, it has a huge influence on the overall all, workup. They're all covered in like bruises, you know. Yeah, that was the thing you see them in the mix on. They've all got like these. They look like they've been um, in a big fight, which I suppose they kind of have. But like, um, I mean, Luke Thompson was there. You know, his. I mean, he's. I think he's probably broken his nose a few times anyway. But like, the literally looked as though he just had the head punched off him. And, uh, yeah, they've got to play in, like, a couple more hours. So what was Brighton like? Brighton is really nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Although, Brighton's rugby country, huh? Brighton is rugby country. Mm. Uh, I was, I, I arrived there pretty early. I said, on Saturday, I said, you know, I'm going to get myself a little breakfast here. Then I'm going to go. And it was a blistering sunshine. And I was, uh, I was actually, I was pretty, I was overdressed. I was sweating heavily in the in the sunshine, uh, and I also had to buy a new pair of shoes because my shoes were killing me. So I had to. I was carrying around a plastic bag containing my shoes, a woolly jumper, still having to wear a jacket, sunshine, sweat, uh, and uh, was trying to. Did find you not look out the window? Huh? Did you not look out the window before you left your hotel? Well, look, I can't read. Really, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I just. I, I didn't think it was. Look, it's the south coast. You know what I mean? I ended up, so I was like, look, I've got to find somewhere to watch this, this Chelsea-Arsenal game. But, uh, but I, the first place I found was Molly Malone's pub. Okay. But Molly Malone's pub was completely full of people. It was standing room only. And the temperature was, you know, 40, 45 degrees in there. Pretty rank odor. Yeah. And I thought, nah, I can do better than that. I need, I need somewhere to sit down anyway. I'm tired. So I, uh, I went on a little stroll around. But it turned out Tonga were playing Georgia in the Rugby World Cup and literally everywhere was showing Tonga, Georgia. I ended up having to walk. I missed the entire first half. I, was, I, I heard about Diego Costa while well, I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone who talked me through it as, it as it was happening. Oh, my God, Diego Costa's, oh, my God, what's he doing? And I thought, oh, no, this is the most exciting incident I've, you know, ever missed. Ever, ever missed. But, uh, yeah, it, is, it, it seems as though generally rugby is bigger there in Brighton. Well, certainly during the Rugby World Cup. Yeah. Uh, it, might, it might be slightly different. Chelsea, Arsenal, still look, come on, this is quite a big game, isn't it? We finally won, Ken. Finally <laughs> taken over. Creep, <laughs> creeping up, creeping up from How the How did you find the, the atmosphere coast? at the games? It seemed incredible on TV. It was good. I mean, there was loads of uh, Japan fans. There's obviously lots of South Africans. I mean, there's, the, the, I think, I guess most of these people are living in London anyway. Um, there's a lot of South Africans in London. I saw a few of them on the train, kind of on the way up. There's a Japanese couple sitting in front of me, and they're like, oh, you know... Uh, can we get a photo with you? So they, they took a photo of these like South African lads who were like drinking cans of beer, you know? And then they were like, oh, you know, Japan are a good team. And the Japanese couple were kind of just looking at them. And they're like, Eddie Jones is a great coach. And the Japanese couple were kind of just nodding and smiling. And then they were like, apparently the Japanese are working on some new type of tackle. <laughs> and uh, the Japanese couple there, and this is just smiling with polite incomprehension. And then the South Africans kind of gave up patronizing and <laughs> went away. But uh, yeah. Went so. away to take their beating, as it turns out. Yeah, look, it, it, uh, there was some bad organization, though, I have to say. Well, apparently the Irish fans coming back from Cardiff, the, mm. were, there, were, there were three hour queues to get back on trains towards. Uh, there's, there are always queues. I've gone back from Cardiff to London after a it's Heine horrible Cup final. Of, yeah. and, and it's tough enough. I mean, the train station, they put extra trains on, but it just always seems like there's a lot more people trying to stream out of there 
than there are uh, methods of transport to get them. But even coming to Cardiff, I know a lot of people experience delays. Where did you, you weren't at well, in at the, Cardiff? Then. No, I was just in Brighton, but I mean, the, I saw the massive queue for the Portaloos. You know, they had some Portaloos at the stadium, just like, I thought, oh no, you know, this is going to be some accidents here. This is too, this is too much to ask people to do this. But then the second day, I ended up being slightly late for the Samoa USA game because uh, uh, it was like in Brighton, they were suddenly like, oh, like there's a match on this morning? Oh, right. Like, we didn't kind of expect a lot of people to turn up. It was like Samoa, USA, or whatever. So, uh, there was a few people nowhere else to go. It's Samoa, USA. Yeah. It was a massive crowd of you, mainly Americans, at the the, uh, train station, Brian. You know, what can I say? That's your one gripe for the day. Traffic, travel, mayhem. I'm sure people will be. Feeling for you here, Ken. Yeah. Having witnessed the, the greatest sporting event of 2015 so the far. Sandwiches weren't that good either. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to you again later in the week. We have two more podcasts on Thursday. We're back on TV on Wednesday night, this Wednesday, with Barry McWigan and Shane Lowry among the guests. I'll be on RTE2 if you have a chance to watch that. You can write the podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can also comment on it, subscribe. You can do anything you like to the Go podcast nuts. on iTunes, really. Uh, so do that if you can. In the meantime, listen to the football pod. Uh, thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Simon. Simon. Thanks, Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thanks. The space out wide here for Japan. It's Heskett. He's done it. La passe sautée pour retrouver les Leima Fix. Oh, les Leima Avec Esquesque ouais, L'essai L'essai du Japon Il va le valider ou pas Il va demander l'arbitrage vidéo Marc Dalmazo ah, et Dijon sont là On l'a eu l'essai de l'exploit L'essai de l'histoire La victoire Sorpresa della storia del rugby. Cosa Il tempo di... è scaduto, non no. servirà la trasformazione. Giappone 34, Sudafrica 32. È un è un è. Lo ripeto, non è un errore della grafica. Buon esame, è la seconda volta che sta, no? Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.